This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ. What's good, everybody? I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. We are just about halfway through earnings season, and so far, the news has been mixed. Earnings results had been unimpressive coming into last week, but then we heard from five of the Magnificent Seven, with Apple, Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, and Microsoft reporting very strong numbers. The S&P 500 finished January up by around 1.5%. The U.S. dollar had its best start to a year since 2015. This week, we're looking ahead to earnings reports from Disney, Uber, and McDonald's, to name a few. But last year's surprisingly strong economy was powered by the healthy U.S. consumer. So today, we'll be diving deep into a couple of companies that could tell us whether the consumer is still feeling good in 2024. The nation's largest drugstore chain, CVS, is set to report earnings on Wednesday, and its struggles have been emblematic of the overall healthcare sector. CVS's stock has fallen by more than 15% over the past year and dropped by close to 10% in January. The company is making some big moves, and we'll talk about what those are and what investors will be looking to hear from CVS and the rest of the sector. But first, let's talk about Pepsi. Not Pepsi the soda, Pepsi the global mega conglomerate that owns more than 500 different brands. The company has been in the news lately. In case you haven't heard, European supermarket chain Carrefour pulled many Pepsi products from its shelves in France, Italy, Spain, and Belgium. That means no Doritos, no Gatorade, no Quaker oatmeal, and of course, no Pepsi. Carrefour said it would no longer carry the brands because of what it called unacceptable price increases. Pepsi shot back, saying that actually it had decided to stop supplying Carrefour's European stores because the two sides hadn't agreed on a new contract. The whole thing became a bit of back and forth about who dumped who first. The rub here is that this doesn't really move the needle for Pepsi. The car four stores in those four countries represent about 0.25% of Pepsi's global revenue, according to Bernstein analyst Callum Elliott. But car four isn't the only grocer making noise about prices. Walmart CEO Doug McMillan said in November that pricing levels in many food categories continue to be a concern. Investors are also concerned that weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wigovi will get Americans to kick their snacking and soda habits in a significant way. So there's clearly lots of challenges out there for Pepsi and even for the overall consumer goods sector. But some investors are still bullish on Pepsi and on the U.S. consumer. And I wanted to hear about why. So joining me today is Jeremy Goldberg a portfolio manager and research analyst at Professional Advisory Services, a registered investment advisor. All right, so first question out of the gate here, Jeremy. I just want you to talk to me about your holdings in Pepsi. I know you are a long-term holder of PepsiCo stock. Talk to me about where you stand and what your position is right now and what you're thinking about moving forward. Yeah, so we are a registered investment advisor and we have held Pepsi stock since 1984. So to say that we're a long-term holder is an understatement. 
So we're, we're deeply familiar with its valuation through different interest rate and inflationary cycles. We respect the management team that has been there uh, almost as long as we've held it. Over the past year, though, Pepsi stock has barely moved. It's up less than 1% or under 1%, kind of depending on the day you look at it from a year before, while the overall S&P 500 has gained more than 20%. Are you concerned that this underperformance could continue? I mean, I think over the short term, underperformance is always a possibility, but I can't stress enough that we are long-term holders. And any short-term issue that we think can be resolved either through uh, just the macro economy improving or through management's innovations within the company, those can typically be resolved and the short-term blip over the long-term won't have a dramatic impact on our long-term return. I do want to talk about that, right? Because there's the talk of short-term blips, but I think the big question is, is this part of a broader long-term trend where companies like Pepsi are going to continue to underperform? Why don't you think that's the case? We think... Looking at the company's business, they have the beverage segment and then they have the food segment. On beverages, it's broken into two areas. The carbonated side, you have the Pepsi products. Everybody knows Pepsi. They compete with Coca-Cola. The two of those are essentially an oligopoly in the U.S. and globally. But more importantly, Pepsi is expanding multiple brands into the carbonated side. They have Celsius. They're adding uh, new brands of Rockstar. They have Bubbly. And then on the non-carbonated side, Pepsi absolutely dominates with Gatorade. That has something like 40% of the entire market share. Now, on the snack side, their market share in the savory snack is about 39% of the U.S. And I can't overstate this enough. That's six times larger than the next closest competitor. They are a behemoth compared to their peers. So, while it's going to be difficult for Pepsi to maybe double their entire volume, I mean, they, they generate $90 billion of revenue a year, that's going to be difficult to do over any single year. But they are already a globalized behemoth that has contracts and a proven track record of being a great partner with retailers. So it seems unlikely that they are going to be replaced by any other competitor. And even in the inflationary environment, there's a super important characteristic about Pepsi's business that should make them an ideal partner for retailers. Well, let's talk really quickly about those partnerships because one of the biggest supermarkets in the world, Carrefour, has said it's gonna drop PepsiCo products in its store basically in response to what they call unacceptable price increases. So this disagreement between Carrefour and PepsiCo, it seems like it's gotten personal, it's gotten petty. You've had the CEOs kind of out there trading bars. Why aren't you worried, or tell me if you are, about this kind of disagreement between Pepsi and Carrefour expanding out to other partners? I think it's a it's a real concern, it's a fair concern, but the demand for Pepsi products still exists. Pepsi's underlying business is typically non-cyclical. The demands for snacks and beverages are are usually resilient during economic cycles. And we've seen resiliency so far. And we're optimistic that that will continue. I think another potential challenge to that resiliency could be the growth of these drugs, uh, weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wigovi, which are expected to continue to grow significantly in popularity. So what's your take on the potential of these weight loss drugs to really impact a company like PepsiCo? That's another important question, and we're looking forward to learning more on the call. Management was specifically asked this last quarter, and they said the impact is negligible. I expect that will probably continue. But we also have to consider 
that Pepsi's been investing in categories that are aligned with this structural trend towards health. Pepsi, about a third of their business now is in emerging markets. That's their fastest growing area. And GLP-1s don't seem to be common in emerging markets. So, right. And when you're talking emerging markets, you're talking those countries that have less wealth, your Indias, Chinas, uh, Brazil, uh, Mexico, countries like that. Exactly. You got it. Which growing rapidly. So we don't expect the GLP-1s to be a major issue in those regions. And locally or in developed regions, we think that Pepsi's existing product base is going to allow them to uh, complement some of the other products that users of GLP-1s may prefer. You are obviously a long-term investor. What's the thing in Pepsi's upcoming earnings report that we're going to get this week that you'll be watching most closely? Volume growth is number one. I want to hear commentary on the inflationary pressures. I don't know if management will specifically talk about Carrefour or any other retailers, but having commentary on what they're going to do to mitigate pricing pressures is going to be very important. Similarly, with GLP-1s last quarter, they said it's negligible. Is that still the case? And I, I think probably one of the most surprising things management did, it's, I would say it's uncharacteristic of them. They gave 2024 guidance last quarter, and that was ahead of its long-term targets. And Pepsi's notorious for under-promising and over-delivering. They almost always beat on top and bottom line against consensus. So why are they so confident this time to give such clarity and such strong guidance for next year? And that type of optimism is exciting for us, but there, there seems to be a lot, of, a lot of risk for downside if there was an, an issue with Q4. That was Jeremy Goldberg, Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst at Registered Investment Advisor, Professional Advisory Services. Up next, the healthcare sector underperformed the overall market by about 15 percentage points last year. We'll talk about what's happening at the country's largest pharmacy chain and how they're looking to turn things around. Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Have you been in a pharmacy lately? I haven't. I get my prescriptions online. But I hear it's rough out there. The three biggest drugstore chains, Walgreens, Rite Aid, and CVS, have all announced plans to close thousands of stores. CVS, the largest of the three, is set to report earnings this week, and investors have some reason for concern. Its last earnings report laid out weak expectations for profit this year. The company's pharmacists have staged walkouts across the country, and its customer rating fell 23% from 2021 to 2023, according to an annual survey by consumer research firm J.D. Power. So this seemed like a good time to find out how things have gotten so bad in the pharmacy space and whether investors should be looking for a turnaround for the sector anytime soon. To do that, I've got Pulitzer Prize winner and Wall Street Journal health insurance reporter Anna Matthews on the line. Anna, thanks for joining me. CVS, the nation's largest drugstore chain, is reporting earnings this week. But before we get into the specifics, I want you to talk to me about the big picture. What's going on in the pharmacy and drugstore space? 
Well, what's been going on in the pharmacy and drugstore space for a while is that retail pharmacy has been seeing its margins squeezed, has been just a tough business uh, for, for many, many years now. And you can see that uh, with CVS and you can see it with its big competitor, Walgreens. So it's been a tough business to be in and there have been concerns about its future. Mm. Why is that? Because I'm seeing that, you know, in theory, at least, we're seeing the number of independent pharmacies decrease by nearly 50 percent from 1980 to 2022, according to this recent McKinsey study. So we've seen the big players really drive out a lot of the smaller competition. Why are they struggling? I think the reimbursement that they see on prescriptions has been, uh, if anything, maybe shrinking, certainly not growing. Um, partly due to the mix of drugs that people are taking, which is increasingly on the generic side. That's a big factor and a big challenge. Another factor is that pharmacies would say, I think, that there uh, is a lot of power in the uh, pharmacy benefit managers, which are the companies that manage drug benefits and negotiate with the pharmacies about how much they're going to be paid. Although there is some context to keep in mind there, which is that one of the biggest pharmacy benefit managers is owned by CVS itself. I want to get into that because I think that gets to my next question, which is what are companies like CVS doing about this problem? Well, CVS made a big announcement late last year saying they want to change how their retail pharmacies are paid. And they're saying that their goal here is to make things more transparent and to make the business more sustainable. What they said they, they're planning to do, they want to do, is to have their pharmacies paid in a way sometimes called cost plus, which is basically they want to be reimbursed for what they spend to acquire the drugs. And then on top of that, they want sort of a margin and a a flat fee. You watch the space very closely. What are you expecting to learn about that model and about CVS's overall sustainable, new, transparent business model moving forward? Honestly, the retail pharmacy business is not really what investors are going to be looking at most closely in these earnings. Right now, another sector of CVS's business is really likely to draw attention, and that is the Medicare business of its Aetna health insurance unit. CVS owns Aetna. Most of us, when we think of CVS, we think of the drugstore down the street. We think of that long receipt maybe we got from the drugstore down the street. (laughs) But CVS is actually a far, far larger company than many people are aware. So in addition to, obviously, those corner drugstores that we all know, it also owns Caremark, which is a pharmacy benefit manager. So I think as we head into CVS's earnings, what a lot of investors are asking about actually is what's going on with Aetna. And the reason for that is because some of the competitor insurance companies, and in particular Humana, have shown some stress in their Medicare business. So Humana recently announced that it had seen significant sort of unexpected losses in the fourth quarter in its Medicare business and had said that the problems are going to persist all through 24 and into 25. As a result, a lot of the health insurance sector's shares dropped a lot. And the question now is, what will Aetna say? What will Aetna show on its Medicare business? Uh, CVS has already previewed to Wall Street that it expects costs in the fourth quarter to be a little higher than it originally expected. But it has also said that it still thinks it will make its projected earnings numbers both for the fourth quarter and for 2024. 
So it's already offered some pre-reassurance, but still I think investors are nervous about that Medicare sector. Gotcha. And last question I want to ask you um, before we get out of here, Anna, is just about how this affects consumers. I mean, are you expecting to see more CVSs, more Walgreens, more Rite Aids close? Is that expected for 2024? And how does the rollout of this new cost model from CVS change things for consumers? Well, it's already been a trend in the industry for retail pharmacy locations to be closing. Mm -hmm. Um, That is something that had already been announced, has already been happening, and likely will continue to happen. I think the question is, if CVS is successful in implementing its new uh, retail pharmacy reimbursement model, the company has said they believe that will really stabilize things for the retail pharmacy business. That was WSJ health and science reporter Anna Matthews. Up next, it's been 20 years since the launch of the Facebook. We'll talk about how the company that started with the motto, move fast and break things, became one of the market's most dependable bets. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world. One more thing before we get out of here. Let's talk about Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook. This week is the 20th anniversary of its launch. Some of you youngsters don't know about the Facebook, but 20 years ago on many college campuses, it was all anyone could talk about. Today, it's one of the most important firms on Wall Street. And while Meta's CEO Mark Zuckerberg was on Capitol Hill for the eighth time last week, testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the company's stock still rose by around 15% in January. That was about 10 times the return of the S&P 500. Facebook went public with a market value of $104 billion in 2012. But $104 billion isn't cool. You know what's cool? A trillion dollars. That's about what Meta is valued at now. Sal Rodriguez is the journal's reporter covering the business of social media in San Francisco, and he's been following the company since before it went public. Looking ahead to the 20th anniversary of Facebook's launch this week, Sal and I talked about how Zuckerberg went from being seen as some kid who started a social networking company in his dorm room to one of Wall Street's favorite and most reliable CEOs. What Mark has done better than everyone else in this space is that whether the idea is his or not, they execute against it and they do it really well. And we saw that with Facebook originally, and we saw that when he cut the deals for Instagram and WhatsApp. And then later on, you know, adapting some of the best features of what we saw with Snapchat and then more recently with TikTok. You know, they execute quickly and they're even doing it again now with threads taking on the company formerly known as Twitter. That ability to just move fast and get things done has been why Meta has essentially cornered the social media market, at least for most of Western civilization. Facebook has gone from a website used by Harvard students to poke each other and show their relationship status to a platform that counts over 3 billion monthly active users. With its transition to meta and its push into virtual and augmented reality, it will be very interesting to see what happens in the next 20 years. And that's everything you need to know to take on the week for Sunday, February 4th. 
The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Melanie Roy is our supervising producer. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabone. Stay smart. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.